are more than welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you uh, that aren't utilizing the children's ministry, uh, kids are most welcome in here. We, uh, we love to have the noise and we love to include them uh, in our worship of the Lord. Uh, we have been over some number of months now, we each week kind of, uh, we just read a paragraph out of our particular confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we started last week looking at chapter 5 of our confession, which uh, deals with uh, divine providence. And just by way of reminder, this was um, uh, this, this statement of faith was created, uh, was written with the, the whole counsel of God's Word in mind, and, uh, and so it is taking into account in each statement, each sentence, um, uh, all, all that God's Word has to say uh, on these particular doctrines. And this morning, I'm just going to read to you paragraph 2 of our confession, again, related to divine providence. It says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there's nothing, not anything befalls any by chance or without His providence, Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And so that's paragraph two of chapter five of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter nine. Again, over the course of December, we're going to be looking at um, uh, verse six in particular. And so last week, um, uh, we looked at Christ as wonderful counselor. This week, we're going to look at Christ as mighty God, okay? And, and this is a passage uh, that we often hear around this time of year. But, but what we're doing and working through it over the course of December is we're trying to intentionally slow down. Okay, we're trying to ponder this passage of Scripture, and really the hope is, is that we will internalize this passage of Scripture and by God's grace allow it to shape us, allow it to strengthen us, allow it to conform us more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And, so, and just again, by way of reminder, last week we, we saw and tried to establish a, a baseline of interpretation, if you will, we saw that we should, in fact, apply this passage of Scripture to Jesus, right? We learned that we should read all of the Bible with Christ Jesus in mind, and we've reflected on Jesus being the wonderful counselor, and that, that adjective, wonderful, it, it carries with it this idea of secret or mystery, and that that secret or mystery is that Christ would become a man, that the eternal God would take on human, frail human flesh, and that he would do that to seek us, that he would do that to save us, to bring us into relationship, a restored relationship with God. And we were also reminded last week that Jesus is the ultimate source of wisdom and, and knowledge, which is the type of counsel that matters. And his counsel for us is to come to him, to come to him by grace and repentance and faith and to live our lives according to his word. And so let me just get back into this text. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to consider uh, this morning this descriptor of Christ, mighty God. And so Isaiah chapter 9, 
verses 6 to 7, the word of the Lord says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again that we can open your word and we can have confidence, God, again, that the Holy Spirit of God inspired it. We can have confidence, Lord, that the Holy Spirit preserved it. And we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit can apply it to our lives in our particular situations, no matter who we are. And so help us by your Spirit to see this text with eyes of faith. So that we can glorify you more, having spent time in this passage of Scripture. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. So again, we're, this morning we're going to spend time kind of considering Christ as mighty God. Uh, and and the, the Puritan, uh, John Owen, he said this about this particular title of Christ. He said that the same person should be, quote, the mighty God and, quote, a child born is neither conceivable nor possible nor can it be done but by the union of the divine and human natures in the same person. Okay, And and there's a a theological term, if you'll allow me to spend a few minutes on this, there's a theological term that, um, that, that gets at what Owen here is saying about this particular passage of Scripture. And you may or may not be familiar with it, but that's the theological term hypostatic union, hypostatic union. And that word hypostatic, it means personal. Okay. Hypostatic union is the personal union of the two natures of Jesus Christ, meaning Christ, he's truly man. Okay. He's truly man and he's truly God in one person. Okay. So, so Jesus, kids, Jesus isn't two persons, right? He's one person, He's mighty God, and he's the child born of the Virgin Mary. And we as a church family, we confess that every single week that we gather, don't we? We confess that when we recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. this, This term, hypostatic, it comes from the Greek hypostasis, and and we find that term most vividly in Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to return to Hebrews 1 a few times this morning, but it's worth seeing how the term is used now. I wanted to read just the first four verses of Hebrews 1 for us, and I'm going to go to a couple of other places as well because it's important for us, again, to see this. The preacher to the, the, the Hebraic church, he said this. He said, God, who at various times... And in various ways spoken in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, and then get this, 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so we see Jesus in this Hebrews passage here described as, quote, the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of God. It's where we see that Greek term where we get hypostatic union. It's where we see it used. We also see this idea of hypostatic union in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, where Paul says this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He speaking of Jesus, is the image of the what? Invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we see Paul elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, okay, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest... The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. It's a mighty God. Right? Together with the earlier part of verse 6 here in Isaiah 9, a child is born, right, is supported by these New Testament passages and certainly by the rest of Scripture, but they teach us about the two natures of Jesus, that he's truly God and that he's truly man in one person. And Deer Park, this is the only acceptable, acceptable way to confess Christ. It's the only acceptable way to confess Christ. We don't confess him as a good teacher, right? although he was a good teacher. We don't confess him as a moral man, although he was a moral man. We don't confess him as a prophet, although he was prophetic. We, we, we shouldn't be, as a church, unclear or apathetic as it relates to who Jesus is. We confess Jesus as mighty God and truly man in one person. Right? And we should also see, evidenced in these passages of Scripture, just inherent here, that because Jesus is mighty God, he's the only acceptable image of God. He's the only acceptable image of God, not the type of image that we draw or imagine. We look with eyes of a, a, a biblically informed faith on Jesus until our faith becomes sight, which is when we die and ultimately when Jesus Christ returns and makes everything new. But as we consider the first coming of Christ this morning and over the month of December, we know and we confess that to look on Jesus right in his, in his first advent is to see as the Christmas hymn that we sang last week is to see God, quote, veiled in flesh, veiled in flesh. So for the remainder of this morning, I want us to consider... Jesus is mighty God, and I want us to consider three ways that Jesus is mighty God. Three ways that Jesus is mighty God. And if you're taking notes, you can follow. You can write this down, or you can follow along um, in the the worship guide. But the first thing is this: we should see Jesus. He's mighty in creating and sustaining the world. Okay, Jesus is mighty in creating and sustaining the world, which again should mean, kids, if you're listening, that. 
at Christmas time, we're not celebrating the beginning of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the eternal God. We're celebrating God becoming a man. Right? God becoming a man. But just a couple of passages to set our thinking straight on the matter. Colossians chapter 1, right? verses 16 to 17. For by him... Okay, the Apostle Paul has Christ in view here. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things consist. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, we see just again, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds. All all throughout Scripture, you'll see things emphasized or rather appropriated to each of the three persons of the Trinity. Right? At the same time, the, uh, the appropriated work, if you can hang with me for a moment, the appropriated work isn't exclusive to that member of the Trinity. And we see that here. Right? We see the work of creation in these two passages appropriated to Jesus Christ. Yet we know from other parts of Scripture that the Father was active and credited for creating the world, that the Spirit was active and credited for creating the world. But Jesus here in our passage is the one by whom, quote, all things were created. Again, we see that in the Colossians passage. Furthermore, in this Colossians passage, created where? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Right, the, the seen realms and the unseen realms, if you will. Right? This means that Christ, he created everything. He created everything, absolutely everything. In Hebrews, we see the preacher of the Hebrews say that the Father who spoke the world into creation spoke to us finally by his Son, who we confess Jesus to be the final word of God, right? through whom he also made the worlds, made the worlds, Right? And not only do we see Christ as creator, but we see that Christ is the mighty God who also sustains. He didn't just create, he sustains as well. In other words, creation, it's not running on autopilot. It's not running on autopilot. Nor has the task of sustaining been delegated or farmed out to some creature. Right? Our mighty God didn't set the world in motion and then decide to be hands-off and just kind of watch how things play out. Right? Paul says in our Colossians passage that in him, all, in Christ, all things consist. Some of your translations say all things hold together. Now, that word literally means stand there. Stand there. This means that everything stands together in Jesus. Again, the author of Hebrews in chapter 1, he says that Jesus upholds the, uh, all things by the word of his power. Right? Christ, who's the final word of God, upholds all things by the word of his power. Right? We may think and talk as if 
you know, the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, that it just does that, right? That it just does that. But the scriptures testify that it's the mighty God calling them that makes it so. Psalm chapter 50, verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Right? It's the Lord who says, rise, and the sun obeys. It's in subjection to him. And it's the Lord who says, set, and causes the very sun to set. And if he doesn't do that sustaining work, then the world as we know it ends. It ends. Right? Our, our world is not self-sufficient. Our world is not self-sufficient. Only the mighty God is self-sufficient, which means that God is not dependent upon anything. He's not dependent upon anything. Everything that is made, which is everything that's not God, depends on God. Right? True. We confess this as a church, right? We confess this as a church, but does it have any impact on the way that we live our lives? Does it? And do our marriages testify to the fact that the Lord created and sustains the world? Does our moral character testify to the fact that God created and sustains the world? Are we concerned about our moral character before our Creator? Do our, our politics, an issue of stewardship, testify to the, do they testify to the reality that the Lord created the world and sustains the world? Now, the issue for us is not that we don't confess Christ as mighty in creating and sustaining. The issue is how that confession influences every aspect of our lives. Right? There's a disconnect between our theology and the way in which we live our lives. And if our theology, if what, what it is that we confess as God's church, if it doesn't influence the way in which we live, there's a problem. Because the way in which you live is actually demonstrating, should demonstrate to you, the very creed that you live by, no matter how orthodox your creeds are. And Paul, preaching to the philosophers and the poets at Areopagus, he declared to them that in Christ we live, we move, and we have our being. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. We were made by our good and sovereign king. We're created in his image for his glory. And one day we, every single one of us, will give an accounting to the Lord. Right? We, we must live as Christians before the face of God. So again, we don't just confess this as a church, but it should stir us to live a particular way. And too often we, we function in sort of an atheistic sort of way. Our character, though, must be shaped by the gospel, and it must grow into consistency to the fixed reality that Jesus Christ is king, that this is his world. This is his world, and we live and we move and we have our being in him. And this isn't theoretical. This isn't stay lofty and out of reach for us this morning. This is blue-collar theology, if you will, or it should be for us. 
Right? So Jesus, he's mighty in creating and sustaining the world, which includes he's mighty in creating and sustaining us. The very breath that we draw is a gift from him. So we should, we should be mindful of that. The second thing that we should see is that Jesus is mighty in saving us. He didn't just create the world and sustain the world, but he also is mighty in saving us. Go back to Hebrews 1 with me again and look at verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, again speaking of God, Jesus being the image of God, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, by himself, no help, no help from us, right? by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? Christ himself purged our sins, and he's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. There, there, there is nothing left for Christ to do to earn our salvation for us. Right? He, he declared, in fact, that it was finished from the cross, right? right? Jesus, according to Hebrews, he purged us of our sins, which means he made us morally clean. Right? He made us morally clean. And he did this by taking his, our sins upon himself, becoming sin, although he himself did not sin, so that we might, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Right? Titus also gets at this very thing in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Right? Stop there for a minute. Right? Who's appeared? Right? Jesus, the image of the invisible God, he's the grace that has appeared that brings salvation, according to Titus, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, get this, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own people zealous for good works. In our um, overly connected digital age, right, we, we seem to know about every injustice going on, right? Almost within minutes of... of that injustice happening, right? And, and we as a people, we mourn when justice isn't served, right? We mourn when the bad guys seem to get away with it, right? We, we long for righteous judges in, in trials. We desire accountability in our courts. And, and this is a good desire as it demonstrates that the law of God is written on our hearts, right? We should want to see righteous legislation. We should abhor wicked legislation or calling righteous that which is wicked and calling wicked that which the Bible calls righteous. Now, sometimes uh, in, in my more lucid moments, I think of my own lawless deeds. I think of my own lawless deeds. I think of my own sins and not just the sins in our culture. I think of my lusts. I think of my pride. I think of my anger. And I know, according to the word of God, that our God is a just judge. He's a just judge. He's not corruptible like the judges of earth. Right? Justice 
will be had. Matthew 12, verses 35 to 36, Jesus says, I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. My idle words alone are worthy of the judgment of God because God is truly just. This means that a judgment will be rendered. A a judgment must be rendered. Our our unchanging triune God, he doesn't look at us and say, no big deal, no big deal. That, That would make him unjust. That would make him arbitrary, much like the judges on earth, right? Instead, God renders the judgment that we deserve, you and me. He renders it on Christ. He renders it on Christ. Wrath poured out on him for every single one of our sins, right? An unspeakable punishment and one that only the mighty God could take and at the same time, acquire forgiveness for you and me, an eternally paid debt. And, and he doesn't just zero us out, we get in exchange his righteousness, his righteousness, one that prohibits us from incurring the judgment of God again. Our just God made us right without compromising his justice, right? Our sins Our transgressions of God's law that are worthy of an eternal hell were placed on Christ. Truly man and the mighty God and in Christ our sins, according to the scripture, according to the psalmist, are cast as far as the east is from the west. And I fear that we don't realize how good of news that is because we don't realize how personally sinful we actually are. But Christian. Christ saved us. He saved wicked sinners to the uttermost, which is another word that we get from the preacher of the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and four, uh, 5. Therefore, he, speaking of Christ, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our mighty God, Christ Jesus, He has saved us to the full extent. He's saved us to the complete degree. Nothing is lacking in our salvation because there's nothing lacking in Christ. There's nothing lacking in Christ. That's why we use the, the word sufficient. There's nothing lacking. He's truly our sufficient Savior because he's mighty God. He's the mighty God who left his throne, who left heaven, who left glory to save you and to save me. So Jesus is mighty in his saving of us. And because Jesus is the mighty God who has saved us, this means that there's no sin that disqualifies you from being saved by him if you come in God-fearing repentance and faith. So Jesus is mighty in his saving us. And the last thing that we see this morning is Jesus is mighty for us in the midst of temptations and weaknesses. Jesus is mighty for us in the midst of temptations and weaknesses. All right, what are the temptations that we face presently? All right, we, could, we could all fill this in. All right, ho- hopefully we're somewhat self-aware 
of our various temptations and our various weaknesses. We struggle with our pride. Or we struggle with selfishness in our lives. We're greedy, right? We hoard things that make us feel secure rather than finding our security in Christ. And we lash out wrathfully at anyone who we perceive to be jeopardizing our security. Right? David took a census of all of his people, said that he could rest in his power rather than in God's strength. And we tend to do the same thing. We're tempted to not trust God's ways and methods for saving the world, and we adopt instead a sort of pragmatic, short-sighted approach to the kingdom of God. We face sexual temptations from within. We face sexual temptations from without, perversions of God's good gift of both marriage and of sex. We covet what others have. We carry anger and we carry bitterness in our hearts toward other people or maybe toward God himself because of the providence of our lives. We see, as the author of one book put it, we see people as big and God as small. Yet, we need to see, as this church, and we really need to internalize the reality of Christ being strong and sufficient and that we must be in him. We must walk, walk mindful of our union with him. We're, we're weak, and he, in contrast, is the mighty God. And we're called to be strong in the strength of his might, not our own might. And that's the ground from which we fight temptations in our lives. That's the ground from which we persevere in our weaknesses. But regarding temptations, perhaps Ephesians chapter 6 comes to your mind, verses you know, 10 on, but just for our purposes, 10 to 13. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writing to the church of Ephesus, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power, the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, it looks like putting on the whole armor of God. And what is it to put on the whole armor of God? In short, it's to put on Christ. It's to put on Christ. And to put on Christ is to walk as a new man. It's to walk as a new woman and not as one who doesn't possess Christ. Right, the Apostle Paul, he says, he gets at this very thing elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, just a couple of chapters earlier, verses 17 to 24, when he tells the church of Ephesus, Therefore I say, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him is the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness 
and holiness, right? To stand against the various temptations that we face and the weaknesses that we struggle with or, or carry, right? To, to wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of, of wickedness in the heavenly places, it requires the strength of Christ's might, right? You wrestle not with the strategies and the mindset of, of the old man, which is the Holy Spirit of God says grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. We don't operate from that place. We should no longer even nurse that mindset in our lives. Instead, we wrestle this side of eternity as a new man and a new woman, and we're being made new because Christ bodily rose from the dead. And when he did that, we, you and me, we spiritually resurrected with him. Right? He made us new. He's making us new. And one day, the old man will be completely eradicated when God in Christ Jesus returns. So we fight and we struggle with the world. We fight and we struggle with our, our own flesh, which is still plagued by these remaining corruptions and our bodies even breaking down the weaknesses there. And we wrestle with the devil, but we do so as one who shares union with Jesus Christ. And that, it looks a particular way in our lives. It looks a particular way in our lives, practically speaking, looks like regular prayer according to the will of God. It looks like fleeing to Christ, hiding in Jesus when you're especially tempted in your life and with your various proclivities. It looks like having your mind renewed by the scriptures as you faithfully submit your thinking to God's word. It looks like humility. It looks like humility. It looks like love casting out fear in your life. It looks like worshiping every Lord's Day with your family no matter what. It looks like worshiping with your family throughout the week as you read Scripture together and pray together and you sing powerful songs that really do push back on the darkness. It looks like heralding the gospel to those who are perishing and doing so mindful that Jesus has all authority. It looks like suffering with a mindfulness that Christ suffered and endured and that He's with you in your suffering. It looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control wherever the Lord has you, wherever the Lord has you, no matter your vocation, no matter the frowning providence that you may be under. This is the outworking of our union with Jesus Christ. Right, as the Lord conforms us more and more into his image. This is also how he shapes our culture. This is also how he shapes our culture. If you want to see the culture change, what we're talking about this morning is primary. It's primary. Right? The Lord will leaven over time our society as he over time leavens our church. Right, what we're doing here this morning, gathered here, it's more potent than you may think. It's more powerful than you may think. Right? How you worship as a family throughout the week is more powerful than you may think. Right? So the Lord, Jesus Christ, He's mighty. He's mighty in the midst of the temptations that you face. 
He's mighty in the comings and the goings of your life. And if you feel weak and powerless or helpless this morning, hear me. That's okay. That's okay. The Apostle Paul said regarding his weakness, right? His famous thorn in the flesh that he asked the Lord to remove. A legitimate request that we should make about the various trials that we face in this life. This is what the Apostle Paul says. And he, Christ, said to me, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here's Paul's response to that. Therefore, most gladly, most gladly, he says, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Jesus isn't just mighty in the temptations we face. He's mighty in your weaknesses, your various weaknesses. And the logic of our God, what this demonstrates, is that his logic, it's foolishness to man. It's foolishness to man. And oftentimes, sadly, because we don't have the mind of Christ, it seems like foolishness to us as well. It seems weak or it seems ineffective. But we have the words of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 6 reminding us that it is Christ and us living out our union with Him that pushes back on the darkness. We have the Holy Spirit telling us in Ephesians chapter 4 that to walk as a new man or woman in this life is a powerful thing this side of eternity. We have the Holy Spirit through the sufferings of Paul telling us that the power of Christ is displayed in our weaknesses. When we're weak, we're strong. We're not called to be strong on our own. All right, men of the church, you hear me well on this. All right, God has called you to be strong and brave, but that doesn't come from your own temperament, what he's talking about there. It doesn't come from your own temperament. It isn't this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of strength that he's talking about. It's a dependent strength. It's a dependent strength. You're strong only when you walk in mindful dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God in your life. You're only strong when you're walking, knowing, knowing in your very bones that you share union with Christ and that apart from Him, apart from Christ, apart from the strength of His might, you're helpless. You're helpless. Psalm 24, a messianic psalm, one titled by the translators of the NKJV as the King of glory and His kingdom says this, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that Jesus, who's truly man and mighty God, saved us. And that, Lord, we get to even now enjoy union with him. And so help us to grow more mindful of his presence. Help us to grow more mindful that he's the eternal God who created the world and sustains the world. Help us to be more mindful that it's Christ alone that saved us. 
And Lord, help us to be mindful, Lord, when we're especially tempted to flee to Christ. Help us to be mindful in our very sufferings, God, our weaknesses, that we can all the more boast of Christ's strength in our weaknesses. And we love you and give you all praise, honor, and